God is good. Thank God for his blessings. Thank God for this church and uh, for the goodness of the Lord. I, uh, I was, was looking at, at some things and of all the things that I thought, well, things I can teach. Um, I, the Lord kind of drew my attention to something that I have actually taught in the past, long past, and I thought probably this is a good time uh, sort of the first month of the year to revisit some things. Oftentimes I will mention things that I've done from either previous lessons or sermons. Some of you who haven't been here may not notice it. Um, those of you who take copious notes will, except when I go back I usually change things and uh, add things to them. But anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, drawing to God, and I think that, that we're feeling such a mighty move of the presence of God, and in this day we need it. Have you ever seen so much divisiveness in your life? Uh, in this country, in the world, there's so much division. I mentioned that to the men this past Wednesday. We had some breakout sessions, and I, I told the men, I said, I don't think I've ever seen in my life so much division, devices, divisiveness, people bickering, uh, so much frustration, and you can, you can just feel it, you can sense it, and more than anything, we need to draw near to God. I think, I think now, more than any time in the history of this country, we need to draw near to God. So we're going to go ahead and pray, and then I'm going to read some scriptures uh, for you. Um, there will be several scriptures. I mean, I'll, I'll read several tonight. But uh, let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Thank you, Jesus, God, for your blessings, for your mercies. Lord, we thank you. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless us with your word. We ask you, God, to touch us in this hour. We all know that we need more of you, not less of you. Help us, God, as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, while we kind of work out some of those glitches, I want to uh, go to a couple scriptures. Um, I want to start off in uh, Leviticus 6.13. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We'll go back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, God's Word, and, and you know this, Bible scholars know this, that the Old and the New Testament, while they are um, the former will and the new will, they actually are intricately interwoven. They're not like, well, I'm going to read the Old Testament and I'm going to see something that doesn't apply to the New Testament. They go hand in hand. And so uh, God intended it that way. And so Leviticus 6.13 um, talks about uh, fire uh, from uh, the brazen altar. And uh, I'm going to talk about how the Old Testament and how the tabernacle in the wilderness figures prominently in us drawing near to God. So Leviticus 6.13 um, says, um, The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Now, I'm going to read you another scripture where it says that we've got to remember it's important to keep the Old Testament fresh and the, the tabernacle in the wilderness fresh on our minds uh, because it plays a prominent role uh, in the New Testament. And then if you'll look at Leviticus 9, we're going to look at Leviticus 9. Um, 
we'll look at uh, we'll look at verse 24 Leviticus 9 and 24 all right and there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat which when all the people saw they shouted and fell on their faces this is an important verse because you understand that this is uh, illustrating and characterizing how there was fire on the burnt altar to begin with the fire that began the sacrifices in the Old Testament came from God and so um, it's I think it's important to understand uh, that uh, that um, you say well where did that fire come from the fire actually came from God and so when the Lord said you have to keep the fire burning that that he actually put his seal of approval on sacrifices by sending fire for the first sacrifice ever sacrificed on the brazen altar uh, and that's that's very powerful of course uh, because it's God that put his seal of approval on sacrifices and so this was so important for the children of Israel to realize you've got to keep the fire burning on this and and obviously uh, you're going to see that the burnt offering is analogous um, in truth to uh, repentance and so uh, I'm going to show you these things in just a minute so we're going to talk about drawing near to God James 4 and 8 says draw nigh to God and he will what? So uh, I think I want to make very clear here. It is, in fact, I think Jesus said in one point that it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The Lord's not trying to hold anything back from people. But people, human beings, have to draw nigh to God. And so if you wonder and say, well, why is it that, that some people are, are really... Uh, spiritual or some people um, just you know they say they can't feel God well you've got to make effort you've got to do something to find God uh, as illustrated by the scripture and so uh, James 4 and then if you look at the ninth verse look at the language here be afflicted and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to heaviness why? Because what he's talking about is coming before God with humility. We come to God with humility and with contrition because this is what God accepts. A broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise. And so God looks at humility of a soul. He looks at contrition. People who come. And when we, we see even Sunday morning, we see people and visitors come to the altar and, and, and their tears streaming down their face and they're saying, pray for me. That's humility. That's saying, I need help. And, and it's, it's an admission to God. You know, and of course, do you have to come to the altar? No. I mean, you can show humility and contrition uh, by acknowledging God and asking him for help. So I want to talk about the journey to God as illustrated through the tabernacle in the wilderness. And, and so we're going to talk about this. Look at Hebrews 8 and 5. He said this. He said that um, who serve unto the example and a shadow. And he's talking about the wilderness. He's talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
the things in the tabernacle and the pattern of the Old Testament. The, uh, it's a shadow of heavenly things. Meaning when you look at the tabernacle in the wilderness and you look at the Old Testament, it is a reflection of the things in the New Testament. So, so you will see the hand of God manifest through things from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And that's why you can't lose the one to get to the other. Because the former, the Old Testament, actually it leads us into relationship with God in the New Testament. Amen? And so he says it's an example, it's a shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the what? Pattern. And so God gave Moses a pattern of things that we know now as heavenly things. They were a pattern or a shadow of heavenly things to come. That's important for all of us to realize. So um, then he goes on to, again, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, um, saying, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. This is why Paul refers to the Old Testament. While the sacrifices were designed by God, they were designed as a pattern of things to come. Because while those couldn't make you perfect, the blood of Jesus Christ shed can make you that way. So you see the comparison. That's why you have to look at both to actually get the picture. So, uh, all right. So this is a tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness. This is a, an illustration of that. So if you walk in here to this part, that would be east. You walk through the eastern gate right here. And then this would be the north. That would be the north side. This would be south. And this would be west. And so the west end of the tabernacle would be where the Holy of Holies was. This would be the brazen altar, right? That would be the laver of water, right? And then this would be the entrance into the holy place. And then we'll see another depiction of this just in a second. And so um, this uh, shot actually shows, and I just lost it, but the next, uh, the next shot actually shows, um, there we go. Okay, it actually shows a, a different picture. Let me see. It's not responding to me, but it shows a different picture. Those tables you see on the side, uh, that would be considered the court. And, and this illustration shows slaughter tables uh, that they would actually use to, to kill the animals. And so you can see once again, this one shows again the uh, eastern uh, gate. That would be to your right. Um, then it shows the north in the upper right-hand corner and then the south, and then the west on the upper left-hand corner, okay? And, um, and then we go to this um, rendering that shows the same thing. You see the same part. And then this one that is a little bit different, so you do see the eastern gate here. You see the eastern gate. And uh, that's on your right. You'll see the north side on the top, on the south. Uh, that would be where the lampstand is. 
So the table of showbread, showbread meaning bread of faces. Everything in here has significance. And so you walk into the altar of sacrifice, we call that the burnt, uh, the altar of burnt sacrifice, um, the brazen altar. And then from there, the laver of water, this says bronze basin. And then from there into the holy place, on the north side of the tabernacle to your right would be the table of showbread. That's the bread of faces or face bread. It was called face bread. I think I mentioned this to you the other night. Face bread actually meant looking at God face to face. When the priest ate that bread, they would replenish it weekly. And when they ate that bread, it was, care, it was illustrative of having relationship with God. That's why it was called showbread or the bread of faces or face bread. And then on the uh, south side, if you look, looked right across, you would see the lampstand. The light had to be in there. They had to keep oil in those lamps constantly to keep light in the holy place. Of course, we know that the candelabra is mentioned in Revelation as being the seven churches. All right, seven candlesticks, seven churches, and of course the seven stars, the seven angels. Then when you go on, you see the altar of incense. Now, if you look at the altar of sacrifice, uh, I'll show you in just a minute that it was actually the coals from that that were used to put on the altar of incense. And that is very significant. Those two were connected. What you sacrificed came before God as a sweet-smelling savor. And I'm going to show you an example of two men who put strange fire on the altar of incense. You can't do that. that what was sacrificed on that brazen altar was pure to God, and it went up before God as a sweet-smelling savor on the altar of incense. And then, of course, went through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, and you're familiar with that. So the journey began at the altar. That's where the journey began, and what altar am I talking about? The brazen altar. You enter through the eastern side. You enter from the east, okay? When you come into that gate, the first object you're going to see is this large brazen altar with horns on each corner where they would lay the sacrifice and where they would slay it and the blood would drip down into the grate and they would offer that for a sacrifice unto God. It's a very gruesome picture, but that's the point of the whole sacrifice. That's why if you go to Revelation, it says that he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why when you go back in your mind to the Old Testament, it, it resonates with you because you know that those sacrifices and the blood of those was not sufficient. Okay, so it was special because the fire, first of all, was from the living God. I read this before, but it was so important that there came a fire from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar. And so the brazen altar was important because God lit the first fire. God endorsed it. God put His seal of approval on it by sending the first flame onto that brazen altar. And as I read in Leviticus 6, He said, never let it go out. Meaning, you always need to be sacrificing. Now we talk about sacrifices. Uh, New Testament epistles talks about a sacrifice of praise. Right? 
The fruit of your lips, a sacrifice of praise. Obviously, it was a sacrifice for you to get here tonight. That, that counts, all right? We make sacrifices. Giving sometimes can be a sacrifice. Malachi 3.10, tithing, offering, bring all you the tithes in the storehouses. And guess what? I'll pour out on you a blessing that you cannot contain. Well, giving isn't always easy. Giving is a sacrifice. Any sacrifice that you make goes before God as a sweet-smelling savor. Hence, you're connecting that what you're giving with what was put on the altar of incense. My sacrifice is used to find a pathway to send praise. When it hurts to praise, you're not supposed to praise until it hurts. You're supposed to praise when it hurts. You don't have to give until it hurts, but you give when it hurts. Amen. Service in the house of God is a sacrifice. It isn't always easy to give. If you notice, Jesus talked about the woman who gave uh, the two mites, if you remember that, in the temple. And there were the rich people came by and they gave of their abundance, is what King James says. That means it wasn't much of a sacrifice. But when the, when the widow woman came by, she gave all that she had she gave out of want she she didn't have anything to give and what she gave according to what the lord said what she gave was actually more valuable in the kingdom than what they gave because they gave out of their abundance what she gave was a sacrifice and so we know that sacrifice is important. Now, Exodus 29, 38 through 39. Now, this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Now, we're going to talk about what was offered on the brazen altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. How do you keep the fire burning? You keep offering sacrifices. They literally could not let the fire go out. You keep offering sacrifices. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. Exodus 29, 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. So in other words, the Lord is saying, there is a pathway to me, but it has to start at the altar. It starts at sacrifice. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. Exodus 29, 43. Now, I want you to look forward in your mind to what Paul said in Corinthians about, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So when you talk about a tabernacle in the Old Testament, you also, all of a sudden it makes sense to see yourself as the tabernacle or the temple and the sacrifices that they made back then now become sacrifices that this tabernacle makes. Does that make sense? And so in essence, we are not just a living epistle. Paul said, I die daily. We are a sacrifice. And how we live and what we do. We're sacrificing in order to get to the Lord, in order to make the journey. Numbers 28 and 3. And thou shalt say unto them, the children of Israel, this is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Two lambs of the first year without spot, day by day, for a continual offering. Now, 
In Hebrew, korbano, korbano, korbano uh, actually comes uh, from the Hebrew root word, which means to draw near. Korbano actually means offering or sacrifice. So when you hear in the New Testament Jesus talking about uh, you come into the temple and you say korban, korban actually means sacrifice. So the korbano are sacrifices or offerings. But those words in the Old Testament actually were used to mean drawing near to God. So the Hebrews knew that when they offered a sacrifice on the brazen altar, they were doing that to draw near to God. I want to get close to God. It wasn't any secret. They knew what the korbano were for. And that was to draw me close to God. It indicates the primary purpose of the offerings. Draw me near to God. Korban olah uh, actually is the the burnt sacrifice, and that's what the children of Israel would give. Acts 17.30. Now, let me, let me make the bridge very quickly with the, burnt, uh, uh, with the brazen altar. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to offer sacrifices at the brazen altar. Repentance. The brazen altar is symbolic in the New Testament of repentance. Meaning I can't get to the Holy of Holies which is beyond the brazen altar and beyond the laver and beyond the holy place, beyond the altar of incense into the the Holy of Holies. I can't get there until I stop first at the burnt altar or the brazen altar. I've got to repent, which, is, which means that there has to be a sacrifice. There, has, there have to be korbano or offerings or sacrifices in my soul and my spirit in order for me to get closer to God. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance. God gets us through the gate to the brazen altar, but I can't get to God unless I go to the brazen altar. Repentance is not a negative thing. It's a gift from God to get us to a place where He can wash us. Anybody who says I don't need to repent or repentance is an ugly word is missing the point. Repentance is a way to get clean. And, and, and I'm not repenting to make myself feel good. I'm presenting myself to God so that he can give me a washing at the labor. And I come before God and, and tears stream down my face. However, people present themselves. Some feel joy. But uh, in essence, I'm going to show you what you actually do feel. There are three things that happen. But, but God commandeth all men. Everybody has to repent. And you don't stop repenting after you get the Holy Ghost. You don't get to a place where you say, I'm repentance free. I have reached the top. Well, just as soon as you feel that way, you're going to say something to somebody, and the Holy Ghost is going to get you. Meaning, something's going to happen, and you're going to feel a sinking feeling. And you're going to keep feeling it until you go talk to the Lord. 
And at some point during that talk with the Lord, you're going to start you may start weeping or you're going to feel a need to get cleansed and hopefully during that prayer you're going to feel washed and better. But you have to go through the brazen altar. Now, I mentioned this. This bears uh, repeating all of this does because uh, we have to have a continual spirit of repentance in the house. We want people who are on the outside who do not understand about God who do not know about repentance, to come into this house, feel the presence of the Lord, and want to change. It's not about saying, well, why don't we build a church with all converted people? Great, but what about those who aren't converted yet? We want anyone who needs a touch in their life to walk through these doors and feel an open door, an open door to repentance. We're not going to run them off. We're not going to judge them. What we're going to do is say there's an altar here. There's a brazen altar. There is a place for you to find reconciliation. We want everybody who wants to to get into the Holy of Holies. But you've got to come by way of repentance. Shuva in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it means turning to God. And I, I say this almost weekly in, in, in my class, but it means when we say repent, and I was always taught this as a child. You turn away from sin. That's what I always remember as a child. Repentance is turning away from sin. But what a lot of people don't realize is, and this is what the Hebrews believe, it's not just turning away from one thing without turning to something else. Sometimes folks do 360 degrees and they end up right back where they started from. You don't want to do that. When I turn from one thing, I've got to turn 180 to something else. The Jews believe that shuva means you turn away from sin in order to turn to God because that's where you belong. So I'm not going to turn away from one thing and spin right around and the devil entice me with something else. But the Lord wants us to find him. And I want everybody who comes in here to realize that when you turn away from one thing, you have turned to the greatest experience that you'll ever have, and that is walking with the Lord and having a relationship with Him. This is not just about sacrifices. People talk about Pentecost and they say, oh, you know, Pentecost is so hard. You can't do this and you can't. Nobody ever told me about what I can't do. If I wanted to go out and, and do whatever I want, I'm doing what I want to now. Nobody's keeping me from anything. Y'all aren't. Y'all are not with me. I do what I want to. That's right. When I go to work, I let my hair down. You go ahead and ask Sister Deneen after service. When I go to work, I let my hair down. I act wild and crazy. Yeah. I do what I want to. I want to live for God. I love the feeling of being in the presence of God. I don't want to depart from that. I want it to stay with me. I've never felt better than I do now when I'm in the presence of God. When I turned away from sin, I turned to something 100 times better. You need to tell folks when they say, oh, Pentecostal, you need to say, hey, you have never felt like anything like this, man. 
You have never felt anything. When I get in the presence of God, I don't care about anything but that. I've had all kinds of highs before. Some of y'all have too. But there ain't nothing that compares to this one. Nothing. And you know what? When you get a taste of it, you just don't want to go back. When I turned away from sin and turned to God, I thought, I'm here for life. If this is what it's going to be like, I want to live in it. I like living in joy. I like living in peace. I like living in excitement. I like living in a purposeful, intentional walk with God. I love it. Shuva is so important. Shuva, turning to God and by extension, turning away from sin. Confession, contrition, and change or conversion. Those are the three legs to this thing. And this is what happens at the brazen altar. This is what happens with spiritual corbano. This is what happens at the brazen altar. Confession, I call it C3. Exponent C, exponent three, okay? Confession, contrition, slash remorse, and then change. Confession is intentional. You have to know that you need help. I can't, you can't tell me and say, you need to confess, and I don't think there's anything I need to confess about. What? I don't confess to you, by the way. When we say confession, it's not to me. It's to him. This is the first step in turning away from sin is to confess to God. That's the first step. When a person begins to confess to the Lord, they're turning right now. It's an intentional act of the human will. When I realize that I need God, sometimes folks realize I hate what I feel. I hate living this way. I, I wake up in the morning and I'm not happy. I'm just tired of this, this kind of life. Okay, then, then, then that's how God's leading them. Some people wake up in desperation. Some people wake up in, a, in, in, a, in the gutter. Sometimes literally. Some people find God however way. But, but all of a sudden I realize I need something more. And so I confessed. It's intentional. It's not forced. You don't make somebody do it. I realize I want to change. Now you may need to tell someone that, you know, you can do this. You know, just talk to God. It's physical and it's spiritual. Confession is not just, well, I'm going to say something with my mouth and there I'm done. It's spiritual too. When I'm saying it, I'm saying it because I, I go to the next step. And you know what the next step is? I got some remorse about it. And not that I've been caught neither. I've got some remorse about it. I got some contrition about it. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to live that way again. I'm tired of it. Romans 10.10, 10, this is about confession. For with the heart man believeth unto salvation. With what? With the heart. This isn't just, he does say confess with your mouth. But the believing has to come from the heart. It, it's a spiritual act when you confess. From the heart unto salvation. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. you got to have the physical and you got to have the spiritual. I'm not just confessing to hear myself talk. I'm telling God I'm tired of this. I need some relief and release from this. 
The second step at the brazen altar, the first one is confession. The second one is contrition or remorse. It comes from knowledge and spirit that sin has separated me from God. Knowledge and spirit that I know the way I'm living is not getting me closer to feeling peace. It's getting me farther. The sorrow of sin drives me to God. When folks feel that deep sorrow, it can drive you to God. Let me tell you the difference between the, the sorrow of the world. There's a scripture about this. But the sorrow of the world doesn't bring repentance. It just brings shame. God never intended for His people to live with shame. That's why we have repentance. You don't have to walk around with shame. That's what Adam and Eve had, shame. Let me cover myself up. When the Lord does a number on you, you don't have to cover anything up. He's washed you. The sorrow of sin drives me to God. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. through 10. Here it is. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. But that ye sorrowed to Repentance. I feel this contrition, and sometimes, I think all the time, it feels like a burden, but you really want relief from it, and you, you feel like you need a change, and you must have a change, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry, sorrow, uh, you were made sorry after a godly manner. When you're made sor sorry after a godly manner, that's called godly sorrow, and it leads to repentance. That you might receive damage by us in, in, in nothing. You're not made sorry for me. You're not made sorry uh, so that, you know, you go back and sin or I'm sorry I'm caught. This kind of sorry leads me to repentance. It's not the same as, you know, you're doing something to somebody and you didn't think you did anything wrong and they said, you know, I don't like that. And you say, oh, I'm sorry. And then you walk away thinking, what's their problem? You know, that's not the same thing. Okay? All right. So, communion with God. If you want to draw near to God, it, it begins with this, it begins with this contrition. It begins with this recognition. I've got to, I've got to have confession, and I've got to have contrition or remorse. Remorse is both physical and spiritual. Godly sorrow produces contrition. 